to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of your presence. Lord, we thank you for the gift that is your presence. And God, we say this morning that we don't take it lightly. We, we, we come in with gratitude in our hearts, realizing what it took for us to experience what we're experiencing in this moment. And God, we ask that even as your word is preached this morning, even as dive, God, into the things of your kingdom, Lord, we ask for your presence to saturate this place, to saturate our heart. Lord, I thank you that it's not by the eloquence of men or the depth of research that lives are transformed, but it's by your Holy Spirit. So Spirit of God, we ask, come and move in this place. Touch our hearts, touch our minds, touch our very lives this morning. God, I pray from the bottom of my heart that let the story this morning be a story not of Andre preached a great word, but it'll be a story that of the Holy Spirit touched me this morning. God, I pray that people will leave this place not having encountered me, not having encountered a great service. But So Jesus, we say that's what we are after this morning. We want you. You are the pearl of great price. You are a great reward. So we are after you this morning. We thank you for what you're about to do. Amen. You know, I, I planned this series uh, some like two years ago, and uh, honor is um, it's, it's the thing that I would say, um, you know, people often ask me, like, Andre, like, what do you learn in the three years in the US, you know, besides how to grill a mean steak? But they, they ask me, like, Andre, what do you learn in the, the three years? Like, what are you doing, you know? Like, and, and I'll tell them that, you know, the, the thing that um, really transformed my life in, in that three years that was there is, is this subject, uh, this concept of honor. What, what is honor? And uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, I attempted to uh, give you uh, what I believe is the kingdom definition of honor. Honor is uh, the recognition of value and worth, and it's the communication of that. You know, it's when we learn how to value and how to see people the way Jesus sees them and value them accordingly. That's really the concept of, of honor. You know, if there's one thing that you ought to take away after three weeks, that will be it. There will be no Tesla, okay? And... Uh, and you know, uh, I I have so so much to to say, you know, and I actually planned this uh, series out, the outline out, um, uh, quite quite a while back, cause you know, getting married, so do I have a lot of time to write sermon? So I actually planned it out. And I was like, wow, do all the prep work. But today, I I feel like I need to take a different uh, direction from the direction I'm intending to take. You know, um, initially I was gonna do a lot of practical stuff and activate you all and do stuff like that, but um, I'm gonna take a different direction today. And but fret not, you know, uh, uh, me and the team uh, we're gonna produce a 30-day uh, honor devotional uh, that will come out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Devotionals, as I like to call it. <laughs> okay, never mind. But uh, but uh, well. We're publishing our devotionals in the next couple of weeks, and so uh, I think that will be a great resource and really bless you. And uh, you know, we want to be serious about establishing this culture of honor. Amen. You know, our culture is uh, is values, beliefs, but it's also actions. Yeah, it's also behaviors. And so, uh, as a, as a church, we are serious about uh, establishing the atmosphere of heaven in in our in our congregation because we believe that when we do so, you know, we will get to see the realities of heaven take place uh, in our environment as well. And so, we believe that honor is a big part of what heaven is like. 
Honour is the culture of heaven and we are serious, dead serious about establishing it in our midst. Amen? And so uh, I'm going to do that 30-day devotional uh, resource stuff. You know, I'd like to start by uh, sharing a, a, a story. You know, I don't talk about uh, my uh, year with uh, Bill Johnson often. Uh, it's just something that I just never felt uh, led to do. But, you know, when I first heard Bill Johnson uh, in, in Australia, um, I was a young man. Uh, I never heard him before. Heard about him, but never heard him before. When I first heard him, uh, before he closed out the sermon, I remember uh, leaving the arena, uh, like a Kiasu Singaporean, and running to the bookstore and buying every single book that had the words Bill Johnson on it, including the word, like, including books that he wrote, like the forward to, including books that he wrote the endorsement to. I bought everything, and I left the arena with a stack of like fifteen or twenty books. You know, after hearing Bill Johnson most time, because I was hooked. I was like, this guy is legit. You know, and and. Uh, and no, that's really what uh, sparked the interest to go to uh, Reading for three years. That's what really sparked the interest to uh, sit under his ministry. And you know, um, uh, it was a dream come true when I was offered an internship position with him uh, for my third year school of ministry. And I remember when I first heard uh, the news, I actually um, was so happy, I giggled, and then I forget to breathe, and then I blacked out. Uh, I like, like, heeled over on the wall and like slide down, you know, and, and it, was, it was amazing, you know. Uh, yeah, not an experience I would recommend. But, uh, you know, I, and I remember um, my first year of leaving for the school ministry, uh, me and Amy were crying. We were in the airport crying, hugging. And then, uh, you know, in like a very bold and uh, declaration of my love, I said, Amy, I'll only go for a maximum of two years. Even if Bill Johnson himself offers me an internship, I will come back. I will not do the third year. And I remember saying that to her, you know. And so when I was offered an internship position, I called her up and I was like, yo. So, this happened. <laughs> but uh, she was very gracious, you know. I left it up to her and she was like, you, you should go. I think it will make you a better person. And so, uh, and so, uh, I think it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it, was a, it was a dream, dream come true, you know, to to intern for Bill Johnson. And I remember um, my first uh, ministry trip with him, you know, he, of course, travels really frequently and so he has like all the, uh, you know, frequent flyer status and stuff. So he boarded the plane first. And uh, I boarded the plane, you know, way after. And as I was going into the plane, uh, it was like a, one of those planes where like it's two seats on uh, each uh, side. And so I walked in the plane and I uh, was looking for a seat and lo and behold, I was sitting next to Bill Johnson on my first uh, ministry trip. And he was sitting on the aisle, and I was supposed to take the seat inside. And so I looked at it, at, at the situation, and I just stood there for a while. I was like, I was like I, is there a way for me to get in there without making him stand up? Because he was, like, he was all buckled in and like cozy, and I was like, I don't, don't want to make him move, you know? And so I just stood there in like complete silence and just stared. Like, uh. <laughs> and then he looked at me, and I was like, are you, are you sitting in here? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and he was like, okay, I'll, I'll get up. And I was like, oh, oh. And, and so like, I, I backed off in reverence. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> so I made him stand up. And so he stood up, and then uh, I, was, I managed to squeeze myself in there. And so I squeezed myself in there, he sat back down. And uh, as I was like, setting in there, um, I had my phone in my hands, and I accidentally dropped it, and it, slide, and it slid underneath his seat. You know? And so it was a loud sound, like, Pah! and it sit, slid underneath his seat. And he was seated down already, I was seated down. And then I just kept quiet. Because here's the thing, you already made him stand up once, I'm not going to make him stand up again. I was like, do you know who he is? And so I, I just sat down and I was like... Whew. 
and then he leans over, he was like, uh, is that your phone? I was like, I was like, yep, that's my phone. He was like, okay, uh, are you not going to get it? I was like, and then I looked at him and I said, um, I'll get it at the end of the flight. It was a six-hour flight. <laughs> and he was like, are you kidding? <laughs> so he stood up and I, I grabbed it again. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that, I, probably you guys won't have uh, as like a, exaggerating as a story as, as I do, but you know, we, we all treat people of importance that way sometimes, yeah? You know, we, we revere them, we honour them, right? We're like, oh, don't, don't strain yourself, you know? Uh, and we treat them uh, preferentially, right? And that's how we see honour. And honour is often, it often looks like for, for most people, like the way we treat leaders, the way we treat people of importance, right? That's what we often associate honour with. But uh, I'd like to uh, put up a verse that I preached on the first week, and it's in uh, First Peter. Can we have that verse up? It says this, Honour all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. Take a look at the first three words. Honour all men. I have news for you. I did the Greek study, the Hebrew study, all kinds of studies, study commentary, study historical context. The word all literally means all. Honour all men. It suggests to me this. Uh, uh, the suggestion, oh no, the verse suggests this to me, that honor is not just something I accord to people of importance, but honor is the way I ought to treat everyone. It's to be my fundamental operating system. It's to be the way I interact with every single human being. Honor all men. I'm not saying give preferential treatment to all men. That would be an oxymoronic statement. How can you prefer everyone, right? We have families, we have friends, we have loved ones, and we ought to give preferential treatment to the people who are closer to us. Yes? Very natural thing to do. And so honour does, doesn't look like preferential treatment. It's a flawed, uh, incomplete definition of what honour is. It's not preferential treatment. So what then is this honour that we are called to Partaking, what is this honour that we ought to give to all men? What is this honour that we are called to live with that is to be our fundamental operating system? What is this honour? I put it to you that honour is not seen in preferential treatment to leaders, authority figures and people of importance, but honour is seen in how we treat every human being. It's how we are called to do life, to be an honouring people. It's interesting that the Greek word that's used to describe honour in the Bible is the word T-I-M-E, pronounced to me. Interesting, right? T-I-M-E, time. <laughs> One of the ways we honour people is through our time, but that's for another day. But the word is to me, and to me means uh, a valuing of, you know? And honouring, honour looks like a valuing of. I talk about, about that often. One of the ways we understand uh, the meaning of uh, certain words and phrases uh, in a greater measure, is when we study what the counterpart of that word is. We study the antonym. And the counterpart for the word that's used to describe honour in the Greek, okay, is this word called atimia. Everybody say atimia. Okay, this is the counterpart for the word, Greek word for honour in the Bible, atimia. And atimia means this. It means to not show respect or value. We are all agreeable on that definition, yeah? But atimia also means this, to treat as common, ordinary, or menial. To treat as common, ordinary, or menial. 
oftentimes when we talk about dishonor, dishonor often looks like great uh, demonstrations of disrespect. I dishonor you. I score your mother, your father, your atoma, your atokong. I disrespect you. I spit on you. And that's dishonor, right? We often think dishonor looks like that. Big gestures of disrespect. But the Bible, I believe, it seems to suggest this, that dishonor can look like treating someone as ordinary, menial, common. Dishonor can look like that. I put it to you that human beings, us, we're not ordinary, common, or menial anymore. I don't know about you, but there was a, but I don't know if you know this, but there was a price paid for you. See, Christ is not just a redeemer. Christ is redemption's price. Jesus didn't just save you. He gave his life for you. He's not just savior. He is the price that was paid for you. If I can put it into a, a context, if I were to go to a guitar shop, I see a $50 guitar, I take the guitar to the counter and I put $1,000 on the counter. Shopkeeper goes, what is this? Why, do you need, why are you putting $1,000 on my table? I was, and I say, I want to pay $1,000 for this $50 guitar. He takes it, he gives me the receipt for it. How many of you know that even though the guitar was priced at $50, because I paid $1,000 for it, it now is worth $1,000. Likewise, today, your worth, your value is not determined by what you do, what you can accomplish, what you bring to the table, but it's determined by the price that was paid for you. And dishonor is this. Dishonor is to regard another human being as ordinary, as common, or menial. Dishonor literally goes against the price that was paid for the individual. It devalues the value that Christ pays on the individual. The Bible says that Christ is in us, is the hope of glory. I don't know about you, but uh, do you know that you have a glory in you? It says that Christ in us, in you, is the hope of glory. And the word hope, uh, you know, most of us understand hope as wishful thinking, I hope something happens, but the word that's used to describe hope in the Bible it means the confident expectation of. Christ in us, the confident expectation of glory. What does that imply? What is the implication of that? It means that in my interaction with every single human being, there needs to be a confident expectation inside of me that our encounter is glory. What is the glory of God? I used to think the glory of God was technicolor, it was like cloud, it was like you know, apparition Jesus floating around. I used to think the glory of God looked like that. But let me remind you of the story where Moses, you know, in that encounter with God, he asked the Lord, show me your glory. And God showed him his goodness. In some translations, his nature. There is a glory that we carry. There is a unique God-given attribute, aspect of God that all of us carry as unique individuals, fearfully and wonderfully made. And in my interaction with every single human being, there is, uh, uh, there has to be an expectation of me to encounter an aspect of God that is unique because that individual was created uniquely. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's why people, human beings are 
valuable today. We are all familiar with the word glory, you know. Um, and, and I talked about it uh, my first week. The word that is used to describe glory in the Bible is uh, the word kabot, often uh, meaning weight, meaning heaviness. But the word kabot is used to describe another word in the Bible, and that is the word honor. Kabot is used to describe glory and honor. I'd like to extend a, a, a possible definition of what honor is. Honor is the recognition of glory in another. Honor is the recognition of glory in another. It's when I realized that there was a price paid for the individual, that Christ on the cross purchased the life of the individual. It's when I recognized that God has placed a glory within that individual, that now the assignment that was given to the tabernacles or the temple to house the glory of God, that very assignment now, this individual has that assignment to carry the glory of God. It's when I recognize the worth, the value, the assignment that's on the individual that I truly partake in honor. I put it to you that honor is the recognition, response, and pursuit of discovering that glory in others and in yourself. It says that in the last days, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Part of me wonders if honor, the recognition of glory, is to be the fulfillment of it. Let's look at uh, another passage of scripture, Mark chapter 6. And we're all familiar with this, you know, uh, Jesus went around, he was doing signs and wonders, commission, and he was doing the work, and he goes back to his hometown, okay, in Mark chapter 6, and he says this, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. And then all of a sudden, they go, wait, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Jose's, Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to him, to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could not do, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. I'd like to contextualize uh, this passage of scripture for you. The Jewish people at that point in time were oppressed. They were under uh, the, the Roman rule, okay? And you know, they, these Jewish people, they're all familiar with the scriptures, and the scriptures promised of a deliverer, of uh, a savior, a uh, Upon his shoulders would rest the government of God. They prom the scriptures promised of such an individual who would come and who would deliver them. And these uh, and this uh, promises uh, almost possessed them to, to some degree. And they were pining, longing for the fulfillment of these verses. Eagerly anticipating, waiting for the Messiah. Picture that. Hoping, pining for a deliverer, pining for breakthrough. And Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus that they were all familiar with. You know, grew up playing soccer down the road. You know, fixed some chairs and tables for them. And this to me is one of the saddest passages in the Bible. Because here's, here's the thing. Jesus grew up in that hometown. I put it to you that he knew uh, the different people that had various ailments, various sicknesses, uh, different people who were struggling with different things. And he went back to his hometown, probably with that in mind. 
I'm going to bring deliverance breakthrough to my relatives, my people, and going back there. But the Bible says this. The Bible says that he could do no miracle because of their unbelief. Catch this. The Bible doesn't say he would not do any miracle. The Bible says that he could not. The suggestion is this, that Christ, Almighty God, Savior, Messiah, was restrained, was held back because of their unbelief, because of their lack of honor that came from familiarity. Isn't this so and so, son? Why do we need to listen to him? Why do we need to uh, honor him? Christ was restrained because of a lack of honor. And though he marveled because of their unbelief, we all know that the real reason for their unbelief was because of a lack of honor. Sometimes, as people, we value the message over the messenger. We value the message over the messenger. Sometimes, we think that breakthrough comes in a form of degree, comes in a form of um, certain things happening. But what if the breakthrough that you've been pining for, the breakthrough that you've been longing for, is locked up in the person on your left or on your What if it takes for you to get past, get over what familiarity is suggesting to you, to get over that, choose to honor, choose to recognize the glory, the Spirit of God that's upon that individual that's next to you, young or old, perhaps... That is the key to breakthrough. My suggestion to you this morning is that every miracle in the Bible occurs because of honor. Because someone recognized, because someone placed value. That making sense. Most of you will say today that, you know, if Jesus walked into the room or if I were a, a Jewish person that day, I surely will recognize Jesus. You know, no problem. I surely recognize Jesus. Those guys were blind, hypocrites, snakes. They don't get it. I would, I would get it. You know, I often read these passages like, oh, blind Jewish people. Huh? You don't know what you're doing. I, if I were there, you know, I would recognize Jesus. I would be one of the 12. Easy. And we often think of it that way, right? If Jesus was living on planet Earth, I would surely recognize him. I would surely honor him. Here's some news to you. Jesus is living on Earth right now in the form of his spirit. He has placed his spirit in a person on the right, in a person. If we can't honor that, if we can't recognize the value of the Spirit of God that's been placed on the individual, let's not even talk about honoring Jesus. Because it's right there. It's, it's literally right beside you. Am I making sense? Are you all with me? <laughs> sounds hard. It's like an obligation. Honor, often, uh, honor sounds, like it, sounds like it both constrains and frees. It's the paradox of honor the constraints of any virtuous life, is that while the commitment to live with certain principles limits you in some ways, it also frees you in others. A man may willingly consent to and even impose on himself certain restrictions that he believes will actually lead to greater freedom and or more opportunities. For example, a man may choose not to smoke so that he can be free from addiction and from that addiction dictating his choices. It's a paradox of honour. It's a, it's a call, it's a commitment that we, we ought to uh, devote ourselves to do. It sounds constraining, but it actually frees us. It actually liberates us to experience the more of God, to see His miraculous power 
working in our life. Honor is the key to God activity. Honor is the key to miracles, to breakthrough. Are you all following me? So I talked a lot about, you know, the, the value and worth of people on your left and your right. You know, but the Bible says this. The Bible says this so clearly that you ought to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can only love from the overflow of you recognizing how loved you actually are. The Bible says this about us, that we are called to be vessels of honor. The, the suggestion is this, as vessels, we're not just meant to pour out what we are to contain. You can only pour out what you have inside of you in the first place. You can only love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. We are incapable of true honor until we realize how honored we are. We are incapable of true honor until we realize how honored we are. We are incapable of offering value and worth, true value, true worth to another individual until we realize how valuable and how of worth we actually are. Here's the reason for, for this uh, direction I'm taking, a bit different. You know, after I was done with my, my first uh, message uh, a couple Sundays ago, um, my sister comes up to me and uh, shares, uh, shares something that, that, that God uh, put on her, on her heart. And uh, she was like, I, I heard the Lord and I felt God uh, wanting, to, uh, wanting me to say this to you. And she brought up a, a memory that uh, you know, at this point, I realized that I have suppressed for some 10 years. And uh, it was a memory that, that I um, that was clearly traumatic. And uh, it's something that I suppressed and never talked about. You know, uh, Amy, when she first heard it, she was like, I never knew about this. Christine doesn't know. A bunch of people doesn't, don't know. It's, it's nothing crazy. But I know all you are like, Whoa, what happened to you? <laughs> uh, but it's just, it just a, a, something that, that uh, I just never thought about and I some manner suppressed. And, and I, I feel it's significant that I, sh I share it uh, this morning. Um, the story goes, when my, when my mom was pregnant with, with me, uh, she went to consult a, a medium. Tanki, uh, as you call it. Uh, she went to consult a, a medium. And the medium uh, you know, did his, his thing and uh, the medium looked at her and said, um, well, you need to either abort this baby or give him up for adoption. Because what this child is going to do is it's going to cause harm and death. My mom and dad were in the room and, and they, they heard this uh, medium, soothsayer person, uh, you to abort or give up uh, the child because it's going to cause the death father. And my dad, no, of, uh, didn't really, uh, no, to my understanding, like it wasn't even something that he thought about. He was like, no, heck no. No way am, am I going to do that. And ta-da, here I am. <laughs> but what I realized was that um, when I was younger, you know, um, I struggled with uh, all these uh, suicidal thoughts. And uh, I would, you know, every time I faced a certain measure of hardship, every time I wasn't sure uh, why I was on earth, every time I uh, uh, experienced setback, you know, I would often uh, defer to um, possibly uh, committing suicide. You know, I would stand at windows and look down, I would 
hold a knife sometimes, you know, I would ponder and think about like what are ways that I can commit suicide to escape from uh, this present reality. And, and oftentimes, you know, um, I would be drawn back to that memory of a, a man who said that this baby shouldn't be born because it's a mistake for him to... And I'm often drawn back to that memory of, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not supposed to have value and worth on this earth because I'm not supposed to exist. And I, I'm often drawn back to that. that. But what I realize now, no, after uh, she brought a story, she, she didn't bring up a story to mess with me, but she, she brought it up because, because uh, the Lord spoke to her and the Lord began to speak to me through uh, that story, which I haven't talked about. That, you know, my dad in, in that moment, you know, uh, after hearing what the decree was, you know, that you, would, you can possibly like die because of this baby, my, my dad looked... Uh, I believe it's the self-sacrificing love of the father that silences the. I believe it's the self-sacrificing love of the father that goes against every voice that tells. I believe that it's the self-sacrificing love of the father that communicates. Oh, the father sacrificed for for you and me. He do communicate that that. You know, the Bible says this of us. That instead of shame, I will give you double honor. Instead of shame, I'll give you a double honor. In some versions, it says, instead of shame, I'll give you a double portion. You know, I, I think we are all familiar with individuals who had certain breakthroughs in their life. Maybe they overcame addiction and God just places anointing upon their lives to bring others out of uh, that uh, addiction, that affliction as well. And God just gives that, that anointing that instead of shame, instead of what used to trap them in the past, I'll give them a double portion so that they can bring deliverance to others who need it. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a corporate anointing because of a common experience. That is, once you were without value, once you were not of worth, once you're not worthy to be honored, but Christ paid the price for you. And today, you walk in that freedom. Instead of shame, instead of being locked up in the past, I now give you a double portion. Now I give you a double honor. Collectively, as a people, we now walk in that anointing, in that mission, in that unction from heaven to take others out from that experience of being in a place where they are told they are without worth, without value, and bringing them out of that darkness into His light. His light that which is His love, which is His unconditional acceptance, which is Him saying, you are valuable, you are worth something. Not just something. My life. That is why we honor. Instead of shame, I give you a, a double portion. Now I'm reminded that, that in the days of old, the, the Jewish families, uh, the older son would receive um, twice the inheritance that his siblings would receive. Why is that? It's not because the father prefers the older son. Because the older son was given the responsibility to take care of his younger siblings if the parents should pass away. To he who is given much, much is required. And you and I were given the greatest treasure, offered the greatest price for our lives. Experience, the greatest experience that can ever be experienced. From darkness into light. From a place where we are without worth, locked up in our shame and sin. Now in a place of honor, value. To he who is given much, much is required. When you are unconvinced of your value and worth, you are incapable of honor. Honor only comes from a place of security in your life. 
unless you truly experience it, you can't say this to you, that honour isn't just an act. It's an internal heart posture. That heart posture only comes when you, in your heart, realise how honoured and valued you actually are. Christ isn't just a redeemer. He is redemption's price. And, and this uh, morning, this is how I want to end off our time together, you know. I, I, my sermon title is it's, it's called the, the Test of Honour. And uh, I, I asked the media team why, and they said uh, this is the best picture they had in the entire album. I kid you not, this is what they said. They said that it was the best picture. So, but beautiful, amazing. The test of honor. Yeah, I desperately need to get the next slide. Okay, let's track with me. Don't, don't grow weary in doing good. Um, I'll talk about the, the, the test of honor. And I believe um, I'm going to bring up three areas that I believe challenge our resolve to, to honor. Honor comes from a place of security in our identity. And these three areas I'm going to bring up are honestly uh, the test or a great indication of how secure you are actually in your identity. Honor comes from a place of security. We all know people who honor, but we all know that that really isn't real honor. They flatter, they, they say nice things in order to get ahead. It comes with an agenda. It comes with certain strings attached. But true honour comes from that security in knowing I'm valued and, and worth something. And now I have the privilege of communicating that value and worth to you to cause you to experience that. And that doesn't come with strings attached. That doesn't come with a need for you to respond in like manner to me. The honour test is a test of your identity, how secure you are in that value and worth. And the first area I want to bring up is this. The, it's called the temptation of human reasoning. I believe if we can overcome the temptation of human reasoning, that we can truly uh, say to ourselves that we truly know how valued and, and worth are. And, and, I, and this is how I explain it. Faith, the Bible calls it, it's the, uh, we live by faith and not by sight. Okay, the, the Bible puts it that way. The opposite of faith is sight. Sight is what is certain, is what is apparent. And so the opposite of faith is not unbelief or the lack of faith. But the opposite of faith is certainty. Making sense? Faith is only in function when there's uncertainty. That's when we need to trust. That's when we need to depend. Typically for Christians, we come to church, we profess Christ. But often, Christians err on the side of human wisdom, often using God as a last-ditch effort. When I come to the end of my human reasoning, my logic, then I activate God, so to speak. I'm making sense. That's what I call practical atheism. Towards things that I deem are more practical, I am an atheist because I, I don't need God involved. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel. And this is a story of, of David. Now, it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of Engadi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rock of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road. When there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs, David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the man of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Next slide. 
And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and they did not, and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Last week I talked about uh, Saul, you know, and we, we are familiar with the story where uh, Saul was given that, that uh, commandment to, uh, that command from the Lord to destroy the Am- Amalekites, you know, kill the king, get rid of the livestock, get rid of everything, kill everything. And we all know that Saul disobeyed that, that uh, instruction from the Lord, he kept um, the livestock, he kept uh, the king. And then the prophet rebukes Samuel, uh, rebukes Saul and says that, that isn't obedience far greater than sacrifice. Saul was operating from a place of human reasoning and logic. It was logical for the king to keep the best of the livestock. Extremely logical. It was logical for the king to keep the defeated foe. Because he could use that defeated foe as political capital. He could use that defeated foe to garner support from the rest of his followers. Extremely logical. Human reasoning. And then let's parallel this story with what we just read. David was given that prophetic word as a young boy. You will be king. David was chased all over by that king Saul. Saul was, in some ways, his enemy, his adversary. Wouldn't it be easy or a fast track to the fulfillment of the prophetic words for David to just kill Saul? Easy, right? Right? Kill Saul. Bam! I mean my prophetic fulfillment. You know? But David chose the the way of honor. He chose to not partake in what was logical, what was the basis, the conclusion of human reasoning, but he chose to align his actions to what was honorable was of God. Many times, we would sacrifice character. We would sacrifice the right thing to do. We would sacrifice our relationship with God for the sake of prophetic words being fulfilled, for the sake of the promises of God being fulfilled in our lives. It's almost like we value the promise over He who promised these things. I can make things happen. Lord, the Lord promised me this position in this company. Well, I know a surefire way to get there. I just need to get rid of this person, you know, backstab this person, do some shady nonsense, and I can get there. And we think that just because we achieve the promise that we are in a good spiritual state. Can I put it to you that it's possible for you to lose your character, your values, in pursuit of a God-given promise. It is possible. We're reminded of the story where Moses says this, that Lord, unless your presence go with us, we will not enter into the land to which you promised. Think about it. Moses, he was possessed with this promise of the promised land. He says to God, like, I, I would rather give that, uh, I would rather not enter into that if I don't have you. It's easy for us to Lesson, the value of honor in pursuit of these things which we deem as God-given, which we deem as godly. But how many of you know that the promise, the fulfillment of it is important, but the process to which you take to get there is also as important. 
God is not, not just God of the promise. He's God over the process. That making sense. In that story, read down after 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we know in 26, uh, David was given another opportunity to kill Saul, and he didn't. What happened after that? You know, David twice didn't kill Saul. And we all know that, that after that, you know, David uh, encountered a lot of pain, the distrust of his men. He experienced a lot of pain in this place called Ziklag. Men abandoned him. Everything was taken away from him. He experienced that pain. But then God you know, sovereignly delivered him. And then Saul and his sons came to a tragic end. David wasn't even involved in that process. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Uh, this is what David gained by not killing Saul. He had a God story. He had history with God that gave him the faith capital to believe for greater things. Some of us today, we don't have faith for the things that God has called us to, you, to do because we have not allowed ourselves to partake in faith that produces a God story. Oftentimes, the, the story of us entering the breakthrough, entering into fulfillment, is a story of human wisdom, of our ability to do certain things. But can I suggest to you that if you choose to hold on to your characters, your, your character, your values, your principles, your beliefs, even in the midst of everything telling you that you ought to do different, even when it's not favorable to you, that that becomes a foundation for God to sovereignly intervene and to bring the breakthrough on your behalf. That is what produces a God story. And that is what gives us the faith capital to believe Him for the greater things. Am I making sense? Okay, I'm just going to run through. And the next test I think that we need to overcome is, is this. It's the loss of prestige. We need to overcome the loss of prestige. It's when we know that we are truly valued and of worth already. <laughs> that we will not, on purpose, position ourselves to grow in more value and worth. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8. This is the story of a Roman centurion. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority and having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Next slide. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And we read down, we know that the servant was healed. Just think about that last statement I made. Jesus said this to the Roman centurion, a uh, uh, general, a high official of the, the Roman rule. I have not seen such great faith displayed in all of Israel. Just think about who was in Israel. John the Baptist, Mary, the mother of Jesus, his disciples. I have not seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. Your faith stands out. Your faith is it's, it's greater than what I've seen. What distinguishes his faith from their faith? I'd like to suggest to you that it was because of honor. Think about it. A Roman centurion looking at a Jewish competitor and says this, I'm not worthy to enter even in your house, even to your house. I'm not worthy to be in your house. Just send a word and I know my servant will be healed. That's like a US Marine general going to an Iraqi plumber and says, I am not worthy 
to enter your house. That is how extravagant that honor was. The Roman general was willing to sacrifice his prestige, to sacrifice his status just for that breakthrough, to honor. Think about that. That's huge. And a Roman centurion, a general, a high official, would go and search out and seek out this so-called faith healer for his servant. What kind of master would do that? He was willing to sacrifice prestige in order to honor. How many of us would willingly do that in this day and age? Or if I were to like chat with the, the cleaner or if I were to chat with the interns, you know, I would look less important. I would, people would be like, oh, why is this like important figure talking to such a lesser being? Or if I were to like spend some time talking to someone back in the road, like people would, would see like, oh, this guy is not very, like, I will lose my status, I will lose my prestige. Whatever prestige and status that you have now pales in comparison to the value to which Christ has put on you. And to you who place more value on your prestige, on your status, than what he paid for you, you are completely, you, uh, my suggestion to you, is, to you is that you don't have an adequate understanding of the price that was paid for you. If you place more, if you determine your self-worth on the things you're able to do, on what you've accomplished, rather than what he accomplished. Am I making sense? Am I saying it's wrong to have prestige or status and we should all be scum of the earth and have nothing to our name? I'm not saying that. Think about it. John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? Um, miraculous birth, great ministry, awesome. He says this. He says that there's coming one who I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And then he makes this profound statement. He says that he, Christ, must incre uh, increase. I must decrease. Right? And we often look at that verse and, and be like, Christians, you must be like, like, like nothing, you know, you are like worthless, you know, so that Christ can be exalted. And we often look at it that way. And, we, we, and, and it could sound like I am against any form of prestige or personal honor. But think about it. John the Baptist has been on the scene for a long time. Jesus was new on the scene. John the Baptist looks at this new, at this Jesus who's coming new on the scene and says, that guy is greater than I am. I'm not worthy to untie the sandals on, uh, untie his, sandals on, his, on his feet. John the Baptist, in a nutshell, uses his personal influence prestige, status, and honor to elevate someone else. It doesn't mean that John the Baptist, you suck now. Jesus is all-powerful. No. John the Baptist is like, you think I'm great? He is greater and he becomes a launch pad. In the same way that John the Baptist did that for Jesus, prestige, status, influence that has been given to you is for that very purpose of elevating another because Jesus came down and descended, not just to earth, but to hell, to lift us up from darkness into light. This is what the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon, that favor, God has favored you because of his love for the people around you. That prestige status is for the purpose of according value and worth to another individual. Imagine this, imagine 
the influential people in, in our midst. Imagine the CEO going to an intern and say, I value your work. I value what you do. Imagine the, the captain, the major, the general going to an NSF guy and saying, I value what you do, what you bring to that organization. That's kingdom. That's honor. It's tough sometimes, right? Because you're like, what about my face? What about not looking important? We need to get over the loss of prestige. Will you honor, even if it means losing attention, losing status, or losing... The way, some of the, one of the best ways you honor the people around us is by affirming them, by boasting about them. And it's often hard to do so because then the person gets all the attention. Then the spotlight is on the person. It takes a person of true security, their identity, to communicate affirmation, value, status. You're making sense. Last thing I want to talk about is this. You need to overcome the lack of reciprocity. The lack of reciprocity. I'm just going to book it. Mark chapter 7. We have that verse. It's about the Syrophoenician woman. It says this, From there he rose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a man whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying out of bed. That verse often trips me up because I'm like, why would Jesus call this lady, you know, who obviously was in need, like a, a dog. I don't understand this verse and I'm not going to even attempt to explain it. But I know this. I know that this Syrophoenician woman, she saw such value. She saw uh, Jesus as such a person of importance that despite the offense, despite the lack of honor, she still chose to honor him. She honored him and that honor wasn't reciprocated. And you would think that that would deter her from honoring even further. But yet, because she saw value worth and importance on this individual, she still chose to honor. When honor becomes a core value, your honor is no longer determined by someone else's response. I have a core value for honesty. And me being honest is not determined by you being willing to be honest as well. It doesn't mean that you lie, oh, I'm also going to lie. No, why? Because it's a value. Honor has to move from just a practice or, or an act into something that we carry in our hearts, into the way we fundamentally treat every single person. And that is only proven when your honor is not reciprocated to you. Whether you choose to still choose honor. I'm making sense. I would like to close with this story about Jim Elliot, and most of us will know Jim Elliot. You know, he was a martyr who was killed in Ecuador when he landed to bring the gospel to the natives. And this was one of the accounts uh, that, of, of his death. It says that knowing that the villagers had been hostile, Jim Elliot reached for the gun in his pocket. He had, decide, he had to decide instantly if he should use it. But he knew he couldn't. E each of the missionaries had promised that they would not kill a native who did not know Jesus to save himself from being killed. He would rather die than allow another man to die that didn't know Jesus. Because he knew that there was no hope. If he were to die, he will be condemned. 
So instead of allowing him to die, he chose the way of self-sacrifice. He chose the way of honor. And we all know the natives committed the greatest act of dishonor towards another, the taking of human life. We all know that Jim, Jim Elliot and a bunch of missionaries were, were killed on that day. Great act of dishonor to a man who honored them. But the story doesn't end there. No. It, it, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, her daughter, Valerie, and uh, a, a lady named Rachel Sane, who was a sister of one of the missionaries who died, moved to that village to witness to them. And today that village is saved. Today that, that village um, houses some of the relatives of the missionaries that were killed. Dishonor. The greatest act of dishonor, taking of human life. Instead of allowing the cycle of vengeance to spin its wheel, they decided to honor them by coming. That is the mark of someone who knows how valuable and of worth they are. That is the mark of someone who truly gets it, who understands what honor is. Because honor, my honor towards people, my honor towards you, is not predicated, it's not determined by what you do for me, but it's determined by what he did for you. Because of that, I need to honor. I need to value. Will you still honor, even if it never gets returned back to you? That's the honor that Christ gave us on the cross. On, Christ, uh, on the cross, Christ overcame human logic. The devil tempted him in many ways, providing him fast track after fast track to the fulfillment of all these prophetic words. He could have completely sidestepped the cross, but yet Christ chose the way of obedience. He chose to overcome human logic. Christ overcame the loss of prestige. The darling of heaven descended to earth into hell to lift us up out of darkness into his light. He gave up his prestige. On Christ, on, on the cross, Christ overcame the need for reciprocity. It says this in the Bible, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us and gave up his life for us, not knowing whether we would reciprocate. He chose to do so. Jesus said that those who desire to follow me ought to take up their cross. And I'd like to propose to you this morning that that cross to which he speaks of is not a literal cross, but the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is this. The way of the cross is honor. It's a communication of value and worth to an individual. And the way we know that we truly have honor flowing in our bloodstreams is that we are able to overcome human logic, the need for prestige, and the need for... That is what honor is. And that is what honor...